We're joined here today by Shilpa Gupta. Um, Shilpa, you're at Brian's old stomping ground. I'm told it's got a lot better since his departure. <laughs> to confirm that uh, for us in a few minutes. Um, the uh, Shilpa, if you'd like to introduce yourself, and then we're going to talk about this uh, this issue around platinum and cisplatinum eligibility in urethelial cancer. It's something which has been here for a long, long time. And uh, it's something which I know you've been working on, particularly in these platinum ineligible patients. And uh, we're going to just discuss who these patients, these three groups of patients are. So Shilpa, you're very welcome. Um, far away. Hi, I'm Shilpa Gupta. I'm a medical oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I've been here since 2019 uh, when Brian hired me and my um, area of interest is treating uh, cancer and doing clinical trials. So Shilpa, talk about the definitions of platinum eligibility, both both cisplatin eligibility and then just broad platinum eligibility. Maybe let's start there and then we can talk about how they're applied to trials and in practice. Yeah, so platinum uh, ineligibility, uh, as you know, is a newer uh, concept. Uh, we've all been aware of uh, cisplatin ineligibility based on the criteria Matt Galski and others uh, developed uh, many years ago, back in 2012, for patients who were not uh, fit enough to receive cisplatin. And typically, uh, they were ECOG performance status 2 or higher, uh, grade 2 or higher, uh, peripheral neuropathy, hearing loss, grade 2 or higher, um, <clears throat> NYHA class uh, 2 or higher, and uh, just any other comorbidities, which uh, we don't uh, feel patients will tolerate cisplatin well. And this is what we have been using for a long time for defining our patients' uh, eligibility for cisplatin. Shilpa, what do you think about this um, in broad terms? Do you think the renal function, because it's it's at 60, um, uh, creatinine clearance of 60 mils per minute or more at the moment, do you think that's right? Um, what proportion of patients do you think are cisplatin ineligible? Um, and uh, and how rigorous is it is it pursued? Yeah, so in the Galski criteria, the creatinine clearance of uh, less than 60 uh, was the uh, criteria. But in the real world, Tom, we all are very comfortable using cisplatin, um, even in creatinine clearance of uh, between 50 and 60. We often use split-dose cisplatin. And so I think from a more practical point of view, uh, 50 is a more uh, better accepted definition and more and more trials are utilizing 50 nowadays. One of the issues that I often hear about is um, is hip more was becoming more prominent is issues around hearing loss. Um, and is that something which you do? You speak to your patients about that? Do you test for it? Because um, I guess as one gets older, dare I say it, we all get a bit of hearing loss, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah. don't. I don't know what's going on most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, that's true, uh, Tom. We all get selective hearing loss. Uh, but I think uh, for uh, patients with uh, metastatic disease, you know, I think uh, if somebody has hearing aids and they are okay with taking the risk with cisplatin, I don't really uh, go um, de deeming them ineligible for cisplatin-based therapy, especially in neoadjuvant setting when we are looking at a curative approach if somebody has hearing loss we discuss with them uh, but we don't really go and look for it 
uh, so, to but can avoid we, setbacks. Can we drill down on that a little bit? I always kind of, my back of the envelope calculation on this was if somebody had hearing aids, then I took that as enough hearing loss that I wasn't willing, at least on the provider side, to take that risk of further hearing loss. But you're saying you don't do that. It's more of a discussion with the patient and then, and then how do you monitor it while you're giving the platinum? Is it just, yeah. you say you don't do it formally, it's just sort of talking with the patient. Is that right? Yes. So for the curative setting, I discussed with the patient that hearing loss can get worse, but cisplatin is a curative treatment in the neoadjuvant setting. And most patients are willing to take that risk and be monitored closely with dose adjustments or stopping if it gets worse. For metastatic setting, like you said, Brian, um, I'm okay with giving carboplatin to these patients. You know, if they have hearing loss, that by definition, uh, by hearing aids is great too. But I, I tend to uh, discuss with them the nature of cisplatin uh, and how in the curative setting, it's certainly preferable over using carboplatin. Super, am I right? Did I hear you right? And you're saying you're more, dare I use the word Catholic, you're more, you know, you're more to the letter of the law around um, around the neoadjuvant setting where you're much happier to let things drift a bit in the, uh, in the metastatic setting. Yes, that's right. So in the metastatic setting, I uh, am more cautious because, you know, with the carboplatin, um, the... Outcomes are quite similar in the contemporary trials. In the neoadjuvant setting, I tend to push for cisplatin, even in patients who have um, borderline hearing loss and are willing to take the risk. I guess the problem in the neoadjuvant setting is many of those patients don't need to have chemotherapy at all. And the benefits, although it's curative, you know, are, are relatively modest and, 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 and one's in danger of putting them in, you know, a lifetime of, of, of hearing damage. Is that is that something which I might say was part of the consent process? I think it's that's that's true, uh, Brian, uh, Tom. I think if they don't have any other comorbidities deeming them ineligible for cisplatin, then I think you know one could certainly talk to the patient about um, how we'll monitor them closely. Just if just the hearing loss is the problem, but if a patient has equal performance status to creatinine clearance 50 and hearing loss, then absolutely those patients don't, uh, uh, you know, qualify for getting any chemotherapy. So, so two, two questions. One is, do you have an age cutoff? Uh, let's, let's say in the neoadjuvant setting, do you have an age cutoff? Because even though those patients might meet eligibility, they, they may have less organ reserve to tolerate, you know, various toxicity. And do you have an eyeball test? So somebody who meets all the objective criteria, they're GFR is fine. You know, everything lines up before you just look at them, you know, and you're just not sure. Do, do either of those come into your practice? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. I think the overall functional status is very important. And typically when urologists send us these patients, they have uh, deemed them candidates for surgery. So um, we take it from there. And um, a patient uh, just based on age is not considered uh, uh, not a candidate for surgery, at least at our institution, as you know. Uh, but if a patient is overall, you know, just doesn't look right, is frail, even though the numbers all add up, I do avoid uh, giving cisplatin. Sure, but I guess one of the questions that I've struggled with, with people come to me and to you and other people with these these trials saying we want to go in the cisplatin ineligible cystectomy population. 
And I say to people, most people, most patients who are not eligible for cisplatin because of comorbidities and other problems, they're probably not eligible for a cystectomy. They're not that many. Um, now, don't get me wrong. The renal function is a big issue. Those patients exist, of course. You know, creatinine clearance, 45, fit and well, otherwise everything going great. But that's not the majority of patients that we see. And the performance status, two and a half patients. Well, you know, they shouldn't be getting cisplatin anyway. Do you think that this definition that we have for the cystectomy eligible cisplatin ineligible population, is that a big population or do you think it's minuscule small? You raise a very good point, Tom. I think uh, we many times wonder, you know, if a patient is so frail that uh, we can't offer cisplatin, then how is that patient actually going to do with cystectomy? And I think while we are making all these strides with defining them for systemic therapy, we should also use more frailty index uh, for deeming eligibility for surgery too. Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's the surgeon who's deeming them eligible or ineligible, right? Even if we don't give them cisplatin, those patients will still undergo surgery. And uh, that may not be the most optimal uh, way to go for these frail patients. Do you so, ever give them adjuvant therapy instead? And you just say, listen, we'll get through the surgery, see what you like the other side. If it's gone well, we'll give you adjuvant therapy. In those poor performance status patients, who are not who are cisplatin borderline does it worry you that by giving chemotherapy you're going to make them cystectomy ineligible yeah it does and most of the times then we resort to adjuvant uh, therapy and now with the approval of nivolumab that's been our go-to for these patients who are cisplatin ineligible uh, and have uh, significant residual disease at surgery so shopa in the advanced setting what percent of patients do you think are chemo-ineligible, platinum-ineligible, and, and how are you defining that? I remember sort of in the early days of immune therapy, there was a temptation to, to overcall that, right? And say, well, you don't really want chemo, I'll just give you immune therapy. I think we now know that's probably not a good approach. So what, what percent can't get any chemotherapy? We're talking about the advanced setting now. And, and yeah. how, do you, how do you define that? What are your major parameters to define that? Yeah, so that uh, population, um, I would say in my practice, is generally just 10% or so. And Brian, as you know, in 2018, when FDA restricted the use of uh, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab to cisplatin-ineligible patients with high pdl one expressing tumors or platinum-ineligible patients, um, that's when we had conducted a, a survey of medical oncologists in the U.S., and we specifically asked this question to better define this category. And, um, you know, the way we uh, saw the responses were uh, people really had um, a low bar to give carboplatin, like ECOG performance status, three or higher, creatinine clearance of uh, more than 30, um, peripheral neuropathy grade three or higher. These were some of the exclusion criteria to give any chemo. So I would say that for the most part, uh, the population of platinum ineligible patients is uh, is not a very common population in the real uh, in my practice Shilpa, one of the questions which i'm um i'm intrigued by is the recent leap trial leap 11 came out and in that trial 80 percent of patients were platinum ineligible but they were able to have and the outcomes were the same as keynote 52 they're the same as you know as as 
cisplatin ineligible PDL1, you know, um, sorry, cisplatin ineligible irrespective of PD1 expression, PDL1 expression. So the outcome of LEAP11 showed quite impressive survival, but the cisplatin and the carboplatin ineligible patients, the platinum ineligible patients, you'd expect, in my experience, are, you know, they're sort of really struggling to get into the room by themselves. Um, they, um, they've got either crashing renal problems with a creatinine clearance in the, you know, below 30. Um, they've got, and these patients, in my experience, just, they, they're not many of them and, the, and they're just not up for tr treatment doesn't really seem to work. But the LEAP11 trial showed 80% of these patients were, were represented in this trial, number one. And number two is they seem to do well. Who are these patients? And again, as you said previously, are we as an oncology community letting, this, uh, letting these boundaries become very grey? Yeah, that's very interesting, uh, Tom, about the LEAP11 patient population, the way they defined platinum ineligible was um, investigators' discretion and also ECOC performance status 2 plus visceral metastases or creatinine clearance between 30 and 60. Now, in, in uh, the clinic uh, clinical setting, these patients could very well get carboplatin, right? So I think this patient population was overcalled in this trial and um, sometimes you know asking the patient about their preference of getting chemo versus a pill and immunotherapy which are kind of gentle therapies although uh, lenvatin if not so much I think um, you know this is a very gray zone and this this study does not reflect the real world patient population because an ECOG performance status too with a creatinine clearance above 30 can easily get carboplatin. Sure, but my, my next question is around the definition of platinum eligibility around, and, and it's a similar issue to what we've, what we've talked about before. Um, the FDA described the cisplatin ineligible population as an area of unmet need. Because of that, there was possible to get accelerated approvals. And that resulted in looking at that population almost exclusively in our trials. The Danube trial, the 361 trial, the 130 trial showed the outcome for cisplatin and the carboplatin patients are almost identical. Now, don't get me wrong, cisplatin is probably a bit more active, but certainly both have a survival of between 11 and 14 months, depending on how you look at it. And the PFS is the same of the two. I would say that both populations are an unmet need and there's more similarities and differences in that outcome. Do you think the FDA definition of the unmet need associated with the cisplatin ineligible population has been helpful or harmful? I think that's a great question, um, Tom. That definition did help us uh, secure immunotherapy approvals in the frontline setting when uh, historically just with Gen Carbo, for example, the median survival uh, used to be uh, six to nine months. And um, that definition has certainly helped uh, look at alternative uh, agents, including immunotherapy. But two years ago, based on your work uh, with the Javelin Bladder 100, um, you know, we saw that Gem Carbo is again back in the game, followed by Velumab maintenance for those who don't progress. And even without the maintenance arm, those patients did better initially than with single agent immunotherapy. So we're back to 
kind of uh, the era of using carboplatin in these patients followed by uh, switch maintenance approaches. So I think we have gone uh, too much into the, uh, you know, this ineligible and now defining anybody as platinum ineligible uh, to kind of get non-carbo-based treatments for these patients. And we have to be careful about patient selection. So, but we, we talk a lot about biomarkers in the advanced setting, mostly predictive biomarkers and PL1, et cetera, et cetera. Are there efforts ongoing to develop biomarkers, be they circulating tissue-based, germline, et cetera, for being able to receive platinum, you know, cis or platinum in general? I mean, you know, just to be able to tolerate, to tolerate it, number one, I mean, benefit number two, but, but I'm really just talking about the eligibility piece here. Yeah, I think, Brian, for determining um, eligibility for chemotherapy, we don't have any useful biomarkers. And for immunotherapy, we were uh, initially intrigued by the PDL1 um, uh, high patients. But now all these contemporary trials have shown that PDL1 has not really panned out as a good biomarker. But uh, recent efforts from Daniel and Invigor 130 have shown that high tumor mutational burden can predict uh, responses to single agent checkpoint inhibitors. Although in the Keynote 361, patients who receive pembrolizumab, even in high PDL1 uh, positive tumors, they did worse. So I think the biomarker story is still evolving and it will be uh, a combination of a variety of uh, uh, clinical and these tissue-based uh, biomarkers, which will help us define uh, which patient can Shupra. get by with just immunotherapy. Shupra, I feel we're firing lots of questions at you, but I'm going to keep going because it seems to be working. So, EV302 is a trial of EV plus Pembro. It's got a 74% response rate. Its PFS is 12 months and the OS is, seems longer than we would expect. The, um, the, there is a good chance that EV plus Pembro will supersede chemotherapy or platinum-based chemotherapy in the not-too-distant future. If that were the case, where are we left? with these three definitions of platinum eligible and cisplatin eligible? I think, uh, Tom, that trial, uh, if it is a positive trial, the cisplatin ineligibility will be a moot point because everybody can get uh, EV Pembro and um, that's a really promising chemo sparing regimen. So the, the question will be to see what long-term toxicities we'll see with that regimen and how that compares to gem carbo followed by valumab. In that trial now, we are allowing the use of maintenance immunotherapy in the control arm. So, but we'll, we, it'll be interesting to see how the upfront EV Pembro uh, fares against gem carbo followed by valumab and cysteine eligible. But ultimately, we might have only a window for listeners to hear this podcast because it may not be so relevant in a year or two's time. Yes. <laughs> so if you're going to listen listen early that's the lesson for this podcast um but it's tom even if that trial's positive i mean it's um i don't know that it's going to have its own toxicities its own in, ineligibility no it will brian but people won't yeah. be, this is a cisplatin people won't be measuring the creatinine clearance deciding whether or not they're going to give ev plus pembro and people won't be saying to people if you've got hearing aids oh we should be giving you this drug rather than that I'm sure they'll be saying things like, what's your performance status like? Right. And we'll be looking at other issues around diabetes and skin toxicity and you know, other issues to make sure the treatment's safe. Peripheral neuropathy, of course. But 
But this whole discussion that we're having at the moment, I just get the impression that we've gone from these very rigid rules saying cisplatin is the be all and end all. And if you don't get it, carboplatin is pretty useless. Right. And, uh, and, we, and we should be testing these patients with other drugs. And as it transpires, these other drugs haven't worked quite so well. Carboplatins come back into play and, it, and at the moment looks probably about as good as cisplatin. Um, we've now got, managed to define this new plot population. Um, and of course, pembrolizumab has a label in the platinum ineligible population. And my concern is that at the moment, we're making more and more patients platinum ineligible to give them immune therapy. But I'm not convinced that's the right approach. Um, right. And when EV plus Pembro comes along in the future, we're going to have to be looking at this very differently. And all this discussion might be somewhat academic. Totally agree. Um, I actually agree with you. That's very unusual. <laughs> very unusual. In fact, I'm not sure it's happened before. I agree. Um, so, Shoba, what haven't we covered around this? I mean, it seems to me there's certainly a tendency to call patients you know, platinum ineligible, like Tom said, to give them immune therapy. I'm also not sure that's the right thing pending new data. Um, let me, maybe one last question from me about a, um, relevant, related uh, split dose cisplatin. So it's used a lot. When I look at that data, it's anecdotes here and there in case series, but, but you guys give more of this than I do. Um, when do you use it? Do you believe it actually helps? You know, how should, how should people practice? I mean, Brian, there was. Oh, you go, you go, you go. I wasn't asking you, Tom. I know, I know, I can't stop myself. I apologize. <laughs> I, I was going to say, Brian, that for creatinine clearance between 50 and 60, I'm very comfortable using split dose at 35 mg per meter square day one and day eight. And in my experience, these patients' creatinine clearance actually improves because they get hydration and, you know, it's, it's actually helping them. Hmm. And, uh, um, so it's it's a good thing to use split dose. It's uh, pretty safe. I've I've not had any experience where split dose helps uh, uh, you know worsens their creatinine clearance any more than it was. There was a French study that came out randomized phase two, quite small, looking at split dose, um, and essentially. Was it, was it randomized or single arm? I can't remember. I apologize. Um, essentially, what it showed was um, that there was some increased frequency in, in nephrotoxicity associated with split dose, split dose cisplatin. And um, the French are certainly or aren't using it so much at the moment. That's certainly been, and we had a long debate about it in the ESMO guidelines. And I think we're recommending against it at the moment, or we're pretty, we're very, sorry, I think it's fair to say we're very gray about it. I can't remember the level of recommendation. Shilpa, I wanted just before we wrap up, I just wanted to uh, congratulate you on your trial, your maintenance trial with Cabo um, Evalimab. Do you want to talk about that for one second before we wrap up? Yes, uh, Tom, thank you for, 